Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. Before we moved into the warehouse and expanded to multiple campus locations, Rolling Hills met in a movie theater. And now we're visiting the movies once again in our series, At The Movies. Whether it be a hero's journey, a villain's downfall, or a fairy tale ending, everyone loves a movie with a good story. But every good story borrows from God's story. In this series, we're looking at five different movies to see how we can find faith stories in film. Now let's tune in. Benjamin Franklin Gates, you're undertaking the duty of the family, Gates, to find the most spectacular treasure in history. It grew throughout the ages and moved across continents until it was hidden by America's founding fathers who left clues to the treasure's location right before our eyes. The unfinished pyramid, the all-seeing eye, are telling us something. Keeping this treasure safe, Benjamin, is your destiny. The Declaration of Independence. You think there is a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence? The map is invisible. Why would we make this up? Where's your proof? We don't have it. Wiley, get down! Did Bigfoot take it? What about the map is bound to get out? Ian's gonna try to steal it. 90 seconds. The only way to protect the Declaration is to steal it. What? I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Ben? It is surrounded by guards and video monitors and little kids on their eighth grade field trip. You will go to prison, you know that, right? Yeah, probably. Okay, go! Get out of there. Get out of there now. Who wants to go down the creepy tunnel inside the tomb first? <laughs> Tell me what the next clue is. What do you see? National treasure. That's a real good movie, by the way. Like, so we're in this series, if you haven't figured it out, maybe you've missed the last few weeks, that's okay, no judgment, but we have been taking popular or maybe even not so popular movies and building illustrations off of them. We're not teaching movies, but we're building them as illustrations that help us support the text of who we are as a church and what God has called us to be as an individual and then as a fellowship of believers in Jesus Christ. And a couple of weeks ago, if you joined us as we kicked this series off, we were in Avengers Endgame, and it was all about the idea of reaching out, this picture of evangelism that we're supposed to embody as a church. And then we moved to Star Wars, and that's super popular and people are real passionate about it, particularly those who are real passionate about it. And we talked about discipleship and this, this path of what it means to, to follow and to live up to the calling that we have as believers. And last week we looked at, remember the Titans, at football movie, Super Bowl Sunday, but it was a picture of biblical fellowship in the life of the church. And today we turn our attention to National Treasure. If you have not seen this movie, out of any of the ones that we've talked about so far, this is the one that I would say you just need to go home and watch it. It's just adventure and it just feels like we have it. At, I've seen it a bunch of times. We have it at our house on DVD, which is how we used to watch movies before there was streaming. It looks like a CD and you, you put it in this little slot and it makes the movie. If you need to borrow it, you can get it from me. Like um, you can give me a promissory note of your home and I'll lend you our DVD 
and then like a library, you bring it back and we don't charge you a thing. Like it will, you can watch it. Like at, there's a second one. It's not as good as the first one as sequels often are, but it's still worth your time and effort to sit down and watch this movie. They star Nicolas Cage, arguably to some people the greatest actor of our generation. Um, <laughs> prove me wrong. And it's, it's a good film. And it's this picture, and like low-hanging fruit, we would say, okay, I get it. You're going to talk about worship today, national treasure, where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. I got it, message done. But really, it's a picture of a foundation. And for us as a church, we are turning 20 years old this year, and we spent five early formative years at a movie theater in a place where popular culture intersects all the things, doing church in Cool Springs in a cinema. And so much of what happened in the life of our church was foundational and formative in that movie theater experience to where it has carried through all of our campuses and all the iterations that we have of Rolling Hills thus far. And I dare say it'll always be with us. Now, I'm going to show you a picture this morning as we start of the inside of my brain. Um, like, there's a whole section of pop culture trivia, and it's useless knowledge unless we're at a Mexican restaurant on a Tuesday night. You want me on your team. Like, you do. I'm not good at sports, but I can, I can solidly help you when it comes to trivial. I know some Saturday Night Live sketches. I do some impersonations. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I missed out on, things that I wasn't allowed to do as a kid or that we boycotted as a family because, yeah, that happened, and th- toys I wasn't allowed to play with. Like, there's stuff I FOMO missed out on on life. There's a chunk, a foundational chunk, hopefully, of biblical knowledge. Um, don't judge me on that one. And then dumb stuff I've tried. I wish that I could forget those things but they're etched into my brain. I don't know what section that is, but they're there. I do know my kids' names and their birthdays. Um, And I know phone numbers from the 1900s. Like, I don't know what I would do in an emergency situation now because I don't know any of y'all's telephone numbers. And if I wasn't able to look it up on contacts or say, please call, hey, like, I I don't know what would happen. Um, But I can still tell you my best friend's phone number from 1987. Um, It just is, it's like that. And then there's this big section up there called Stuff People Told Me Mattered, but in fact does not matter at all. Looking at you, Pythagorean theorem. Like A squared plus B squared. Like I don't know if the teacher was just under the impression that it would one day be important, but it's not. Like I have yet in all of my almost 45 years of life to have used it in any, it has not helped me get a job. Um, It didn't help me land a wife. It has not helped us know how to do any of the things. And if I could take and stuff into that section, like actually useful stuff. Um, How to unclog a toilet, or like how to change an oil on a vehicle, or not get ripped off when you go to pay somebody else to change it. Like all these things that are actual useless knowledge, useful knowledge that they don't teach you in life, and instead I'm filled up with all these things. We the people of the United States of America, in order to form, like I know the preamble to the Constitution, you do too, And I have never, in all of my adult years of living, been asked to recite it. It has, it's literally gotten me nothing in life. And yet, I know it. There's a whole lot of things um, that our minds are just full of and that we, we fill up our brains with. And what I would say today as we kick this off, out of anything that we've talked about so far this series, um, the thing that we'll land on today, this this picture and this idea of of worship, what it is and what it means, we've got to carve out some space in our minds 
and in our lives for an accurate, applicable definition of that because we need it and we'll use it every day. We need it. And without it, our, our foundation, that's, that's ultimately what this movie is about. It's not about finding a treasure, but it's about the ideals on which this nation was founded. And, and we need to go back to what we're founded on. And, and we need to be reminded of what we're rooted in, in order to function, in order to live, in, in order to make it in this life. We say as a foundational statement in the life of our church that it's a missions moment. Rolling Hills Community Church exists to bring glory to God. And that's the picture of worship. We could stop the sentence right there because we don't have to go any further. Like we literally exist. We, we breathe. We move. We, li- we wake up in the morning. We go to bed at night. The earth spins on its axis and everything about us exists to bring glory to God. But we let the sentence go a little bit further. Um, but we exist to bring glory to God by reaching people for Christ that they may know how good God is and how sacrificial his son was in making a way for us to, to know him and to glorify him. Like we, we, we exist to bring glory to God by bringing people to Christ, reaching them and nurturing them in the faith. And then we talk about inspired worship and, and, and a genuine community, what we're building through, through accurate biblical fellowship and then passionate ministry that transforms people, like transforms whole lives in our neighborhoods and around the world. And that whole value, everything that's a part of it is built on the idea that you and I exist. Nothing matters about our lives unless we are somehow living every single aspect of it to bring glory to God Almighty. Louis Giglio has a best effort for this. He says worship is our response. It's, it's literally the way that we respond. Like we respond to who God is and to what he's done. He says it's our response, both personal, that's us individually on a Sunday morning or on a Tuesday afternoon drive and every other moment in between. Like we exist personally and corporately when we come together to bring glory to God. Like worship is our response to him and we do that individually and we do that corporately for who he is and what he has done. And it's expressed in and by the things that we say, and that certainly includes the songs that we sing, but also by the ways that we live. It's integral to who we are. So I would say this, worship, we've always had the key to the absolute most valuable treasure. Isaiah 33, 6 says this, he will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. Then the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. And we can unpack several words from that verse. We can unpack the word foundation. It's the Hebrew word emunah. And I was practiced all week so that I wouldn't accidentally say the word enema. And I didn't, I crushed it. Um, <laughs> Emunah is a foundation. It means that we are stable. It means that we are fixed on something that's firm and that's immovable. The next word that we could highlight in that moment is the idea of the word fear. And it's not fear like snakes, although I'm petrified. It's, it's fear as in awe. It's fear as reverence. It's fear as a picture of worship. It's what we bring to God when we stand before God and we look at God and we realize how very big he is and how very small and weak and ultimately sinful we are. It's to stand in awe of him and we do that by the stuff that we say and the things that we sing, but ultimately we do that by the way that we live our lives and then we get this picture of a treasure and it's a storehouse. It's a treasury. 
It's where you put the stuff that counts. It's even the word armory or weaponry. And we sing that song, my weapon is a melody. Like we understand that picture of what's valuable in life. It would be great just to sit here and think, okay, where your treasure is, there your heart is. But, but this, this idea of this illustration is about our foundation. What's at the root and what's at the core of who we are. You have a question to consider. And there's this moment in the movie where Ben Gates, Nick Cage, um, is following the clues to find all these things that will ultimately lead him to a treasure, and he lands at the Liberty Bell, or where they housed it, and, and you know, there's a big crack in it. Um, so he lands at the place where the Liberty Bell is, and he looks as the sun sets, and it casts a shadow on a brick, and he's got to go to that brick, and he's got to pull that brick out of the mortar of the wall, and inside that brick is hollowed out, and it's a pair of glasses. He pulls out these glasses, and they're special because they have all these lenses that fold down in front of it, and it's with those glasses, those lenses, that they can actually see the map that's embedded, this hidden treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. They find a treasure map, and the glasses help him see what we need is Almighty God to put some glasses in front of our faces that let us see something that's there. And and we can't always see it, and the world can't always see it. They can see the effects of it, and they see the drama behind it. But we need God to show us what's really there. What is the foundation of our lives? What is yours? What is everything else built on? We've used a parable every single one of these weeks because that's how Jesus communicated and he told stories. They didn't have video cameras back then and that's why there weren't movies in the New Testament. But Jesus told stories and much like the films that we see are just stories that we're invited to enter into to understand a picture of reality that's different than what we understand to be true. That's what Jesus was doing with his audience. And at the conclusion of his longest discourse, the longest recorded sermon that we have of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount, it's from Matthew chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7, it ends with this this parable type story. He says this in 724, therefore, everything that I've said so far, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's not just somebody that hears the word. You got to be somebody that also applies the word. It's not enough to know God's word. And there's a whole lot of people that know a whole lot. Their, Their brain is filled up with a bigger section of Bible knowledge than mine. I teach in front of them on Sunday morning sometimes. I engage them out there in the world. There's people that are puffed up with all sorts of biblical knowledge, but we're not going to land on the people who just want to be puffed up with biblical knowledge without meeting it with biblical application because Jesus says, therefore, anybody who hears these words of mine, James talks about it too in James chapter 1, verse 22. He's like, do not be hearers of the word alone and deceive yourself. You've got to do what it says. He says, anybody who hears these words, who who knows these words, but then also applies these words, puts them into practice, what does he compare it to? He says, it's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And it says, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, Jesus talked in opposites quite a bit, does not put them into practice. You hear the words. You know the words, you can answer the trivia questions, but yet you don't apply what these words say to your life, and you're not willing to submit to the authority of this word in your life. Is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. The Bible understands they, they, they stood in awe. 
Because Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So if we want to understand worship, and and we want to understand what it is to live a life of worship, then we've got to recognize that real worship is so much more than any song that we sing. Like, we've dumbed it way down if we say, oh, worship is a song that we sang together or a set of songs that we sang together or a type of song that we listen to on the radio. Like, you can say to your Alexa this afternoon, hey, Alexa, play worship music, and she'll pull up some popular tunes that are designated in that category for you, and you don't even have to think about it or go and research it for yourself. Like, we have designated that somehow worship is equated to this picture of singing in our lives, and that's not what the Bible gives us. It says in Romans 12:1, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what Louis Giglio say? He says, worship is our response to who God is and what he's done. So what are we responding to? In view of God's mercy, like because God is merciful and because he gave us his son in mercy to spare us from our lives of sin, what are we urged to do? To offer our, sing songs, sing some songs, friends. No, we're urged to offer ourselves, our whole lives, as a living sacrifice. This is holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship. This whole picture of true and proper worship isn't singing, it's sacrifice. The root of the Greek word for sacrifice, what does it mean? It means death. It's Galatians 2.20. It's that you and I have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. Christ lives in us. Galatians 5.24, that those who belong to Christ, those who are worshiping God in spirit and truth, those who are submitting to him, those who are recognizing his mercy, we've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires so that we can live life according to his plans, so that we can follow him, so that we can apply his word, so that we can be obedient to who he is. Everything that we must know about worship has to end with the idea of the songs that we sing. It has to begin with the real definition, and that's the sacred service that we bring. I'm so glad y'all didn't bring any sheep and goats this morning. I don't know what I would have done because that is also something in my life that I don't know how to do. Like some of y'all are hunters and you know how to go and like, that's okay, no judgment. You know how to slaughter a deer and hang its head on your wall. I get it. And there's all these Old Testament instructions that tell us how how the priests and the Levites were to take the lamb and to kill the lamb and to spread the blood and to burn up the flesh and all these kinds of things. Like, y'all would need to go to another church if that was still our worship requirement. Because um, I would just be so poor at that. Like, there's no, Joel, he wouldn't be any good at it either. Like, none of us could do that. Like, I'm so glad that in order to properly and effectually worship God today, it was not about us bringing a goat or a sheep or a lamb or a bird. If you're poor, you can bring a bird. It's okay. Like, none of those things. Like, I, I like golden doodles, but the rest of the animals I'm not about. So I don't know how we would do that. But because of Christ's once and for all sacrifice and his shed blood applied to our life, we get to be a people who stand in so much awe of God that we can't help but bring anything else except for lives of all-out submission, this obedience to our king. We want to be people who hear these words but then also apply these words because that's also what wisdom is. It's about the obedience that we bring. And make no mistake, it's not a question or if you worship. Well, you know, we don't actually, I don't worship anything. People might say that to you. Yes, you do. 
you actually worship the idea of not worshiping anything. Like, it's not a question of if you worship, but of who or what you worship. And so for us, we have to understand that everything we are in life is about having a sure foundation. And that foundation comes from a right picture of authority. To say to the great God of this universe, you're in charge and I'm not. To say to this book that we've been provided with, I will trust this and follow this even when I don't understand this or even like this. Who do you submit to in life? You submit to something. You, you willingly submit to someone. It's more than just how you spend your money and how you spend your time and how you spend your energy. It's what you give your allegiance to, and it's what you will allow to rule over you. Augustine said this. I've quoted it so many times on this stage. I think it's a, a mantra for me in life, and it continues to frame what I understand. If you believe what you like in the gospel— like, I'm going to believe the things that are convenient. I'm going to believe the things that are easy. I'm going to believe the things that put other people in their place, but not the things that put me in my place. Like, if you believe the stuff that you like about this gospel and reject what you don't like, well, that's an inconvenient truth, or that's a harsh truth, or that doesn't sound very, like, I, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't approve of that. Like, if we reject the things that we don't like, then it's not the gospel that we believe. It's ourselves. It means we've put ourselves on a seat of authority that we don't belong in and refused to stand in awe and recognize Jesus as one who, who speaks and teaches with authority and the, the word that he gives us to be an ultimate authority in our lives. If you kick it back to the Old Testament, you encounter this story that's a, a picture of worship and it's a familiar one. It comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 6. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, um, and, and you can do that too, right? You can frame your life and your story and your history by big, pivotal key moments. Like, like in the year that I, that I lost my mom, or, or in the year that I graduated, or in the year that I got married, or in, in the year that we got, back when we got pregnant. You can take significant moments in your life and attach them to, to other significant moments in your life. And that's what Isaiah is doing. And why does this matter in the moment? It's because King Uzziah was remembered, even though he screwed up at the end of his life and he ended up dying as like a poor leper. Like there was all these kinds of things where he lost sight of his priorities. But he ultimately reigned in Judah for 52 years. He became king when he was 16 years old. And he is remembered as one of, because most of them are real bad. He's remembered as one of the better kings. And some Jewish scholarship tells us that he and Isaiah were actually cousins. Wouldn't that be fun? So Isaiah's sitting there and talking about sort of like, hey, when King Uzziah, my cousin, died, when, when that pivotal moment happened in my life and in our community and in my family, I saw the Lord. Some of you can take moments in your life when you saw God and it was in the middle of a deep tragedy or a personal wound or a really hard hit. He says, I saw the Lord. And where was he? He was high. He was exalted. He was seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I thought about that picture this week of like the train of his robe filling the temple. And the only context I have for train is not like choo-choo train. And the only context I have for train is not the band that was really good in the early 2000s. The only context that I have for train is like a wedding dress. 
Because we, we say that that's the train of the wedding dress. Like girls pick their wedding dress not just if the front is pretty. They pick the wedding dress if the, the back is real pretty because that's what's going to be shown to all of the guests who gather that day. Like they're going to want the train of the robe to be just as pretty. Like it's going to trickle down the steps. And there's this one girl over to the side who's the maid of honor. And it's not really a privileged position. Like you got to hold extra stuff. You've got to plan parties along the way. And not only that, but you have to stand up in front of all of those other guests. You have to bend down in a dress that's not that comfortable or as pretty and like fix her dress just so that it shows the best so that the photos look the nicest like you have a job like they're over there taking vows like sometimes I'm a preacher at weddings and I'm I'm praying like dearly beloved we are gathered today and there's this girl over to the side on her knees like fixing things on the stage like it's such a weird moment but the train of the wedding gown matters and this is what Isaiah sees He sees the train of the robe, and it's literally a double word in the Hebrew scriptures. The train, it's the skirt. Please don't isolate one little clip of what I said today and put it like in a weird space. Like, Pastor Nick said that God wears skirts. Okay, whatever. Like the skirt of his skirt, like the edge of the gown that God is wearing fills up the temple. If you do the math, it's like 2,700 square feet, which is not as big as some of your houses, I know. But it's real high. It's a big temple. It's big open space. And if just the train, just the bottom of the pretty part, fills up all of that space inside the temple, if the train of the robe that God was wearing filled up the temple, how big is the God that was wearing it? Isaiah saw a majestic God. He saw a massive Lord and creator. And not only that, but he says above him were seraphim, this type of angel, and each with six wings. And with two wings, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. That's a euphemism in Hebrew, and it's real strange. We're not going to talk about what that means today because it's like many of the films that we're talking about this month, not PG rated. But And with two, they were flying. And not only that, but they were crying out. It says that the, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. If you repeat that in scripture three times, it's for emphasis, this trihagian picture of like, holy, Holy, holy. We can't just say that God is holy. We can't just say that God is holy, holy. We have to say that God is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And then it says the whole earth is full of his glory. Now I want you to see a picture of this. Because if the temple is full of the train of his robe, God's skirt of his skirt is filled up this temple. And it's pretty. We're looking at it and we're in awe of it. But the world, like 2,700 square feet, is his train. But the earth is where we get to see his glory. The whole earth is filled up with the glory of Almighty God. And it says at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah's response to who God is and to what he had done and to what he had seen. His response was, woe to me. I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. Like, it's not just me, all y'all too. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Whoa. What's your foundation? Is it that? Is your life built on the fact that you have seen holy God and confessed him as Almighty? 
like in there is a picture of, I mean, some of you come to this church for the very first time and you're checking it out because you saw it online or because a friend invited you to be here. And we're, we're really glad that you came and you think some of this is strange and you're not ready to buy into this picture of Jesus Christ being sacrificed on a cross and coming back to life three days later so that you would have eternity with God so that you could literally come into his presence. The picture of what we do when we come into the presence of God is to recognize how majestic and how powerful and how huge he is, but then also it forces us to reckon with how weak and insignificant and sinful we are. And so like Isaiah, we repent of it and we say, I'm not worthy. Now, I don't know this because I've looked at anything related to building houses. So if you're in construction, please don't come and tell me how very wrong I got this. I know that once the house is built, you don't see much of the foundation anymore. Like once you're in the building, you barely see the foundation. Like, you may see the outside of it on the bottom of the building, and we're in really old buildings here in West Nashville, some that date all the way back to 1909. So I've learned a little bit about what it means when you have an unsure or a faulty foundation. Like, you don't see the foundation anymore, but if it's faulty, you see the cracks. Like, I know that if I go into, like, an older house in this community and there are cracks up high on the wall that you can see that somebody's just painted over and over and over again through the years, what that typically means is that something's wrong in the foundation. Like, I can't see the foundation of your life no matter what kind of glasses you give me. You can't see the foundation of my life, but if there's cracks, we notice it. Like, that's it. What's the foundation of your life? Because you might have a few cracks that are showing in the crash. It's going to be big. Because the Bible doesn't say, like, if there's a storm. It's like when there's a storm. And it happened to both houses. Like, when challenges come, that's how we know what your foundation is. Because if you're on a firm foundation, it doesn't matter how many challenges come your way. You're going to stand. But when your foundation is not on God and his word and on your confession of faith in Jesus Christ, when worship is not the foundation of of who you are in this life, storms are going to come and we're going to see the cracks and you're going to feel the cracks. And, And there may come a crash. And some of us will sit back and wonder, be like, well, I had no idea. Like, I don't understand. All of a sudden, they've, they've stepped away from faith. They've stepped away from Christ-like honoring supportive community. They've, they've stepped away from their belief. They're all of a sudden faltering in all sorts of life, and it doesn't make sense. And we can see all these cracks because the foundation was wrong. Because the foundation wasn't sure. I should probably use a, a National Treasure illustration. The Liberty Bell has a crack. So do we all. And without the proper foundation, there there will come a crash. And the foundation that we have is an acknowledgement of who he is and and who we are because the, the, the right response, the worship response to seeing God and recognizing who he is is submission. You can even write confession because it starts there. It's confession of who you are and then submission to who he is. That's why the crowds were literally standing in such 
awe of Jesus because he didn't just explain what God's word meant in a really great way like some of their other teachers. He had authority over it. They were blown away by the fact that he wasn't just teaching a word that he himself was submitting to. They were blown away by the fact that he was teaching a word that he had authority over. And if you continue in the book of Isaiah, it says that one of the seraphim flew over to Isaiah with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And when he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Like the picture of submission that we need in life starts with confession and then forgiveness that God and God alone can give. And that's why we stand in awe of him in view of the mercy of an almighty God whose robe fills up a temple that would come and forgive weak, insignificant, sinful people like us of our sin. The only right response to that is total awe and submission. So then the voice says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's like, here I am, send me. And if you continue, like we use that verse missionally a lot, but if you continue reading, the task that he was given was hard. And his next response was like, how long do I have to do this, God? That's me sometimes. <laughs> Nick, you're going to go do this. Okay, I will. How long? <laughs> how long is it going to take? What's your foundation is it right submission to who God is and what he's done and, and what it means to be his? There's a conversation that happens in the movie. And it's Riley, the guy that's tagging along with, with Ben Gates, played by Nick Cage the whole time. And he was like, anyone crazy enough to believe us isn't going to want to help. And some of you are sitting there today like, oh, there's some crazy people. And like, we really believe this. Like, if you're sitting here today and you're on the fence about how much God loves you, we really believe it. If you're sitting here today and you're on the fence of just how sinful you are and there's just no way that he could receive you, I just want to say you're in a group of people who are crazy enough to believe it. Like, we believe this word and we want to communicate this word. We want to build our lives on the foundation of this truth. And so Nick Cage replies to him in this moment, yeah, you're right. Anybody crazy enough to believe us isn't going to want to help. And he says, we don't need someone crazy. We need someone one step short of crazy. And that's, that's what I hope we have here. I hope we have just a whole bunch of people that are just one screw shy of <laughs> just the, the people that are just insane over this word and over this truth and over this gift that we've been given in Christ. Like, we just need people that are one step short of crazy. And some of y'all are looking around and be like, Nick, success. I'm looking around. We got some crazy people in the room. And if you're not looking around and saying, oh, we got some crazy people in the room, you're the crazy person in the room that somebody's looking at going, she's batty. And so he asks him, he's like, so what do you get when you're one step shy of crazy? And Riley's like obsessed. That's what you get. You get obsessed. He's like, no, you get passionate. That's what we want. People are so passionate about this word and this truth and this story and this life. People who have seen Almighty God and stared at the train of his robe and are just nutty enough to raise their hands and say, okay, I'll do it. Whatever you say, God, I, I submit to you. I surrender to you, whatever verb you like. I surrender to you. I give you my whole self. Take it. All of it. 
key to that, the key to living that kind of passionate, almost crazy, surrendered life is, is right worship. One that believes that the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the word that you've given us and the chance that we have to be a people today who sit under it and submit to it. Our prayer, God, is that in this moment and in every moment that we would be a people who give you our whole selves, who offer you true and right worship, who desire nothing more than to see how grand you are and to reflect and show the world just how much you love. So may we be a people of surrender. May we be a people of submission. May we people be a people who recognize your authority in our lives and live it out in a way that counts. We worship you today, God, for who you are and what you've done and my mercy, what you've made possible for us. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus that we pray and to that name and his word that we submit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with movie lovers, friends, and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.